0: the pieces of me that I would rather remain hidden in the shadows, when I'm able to, with self-compassion, look at them and attempt to heal, then it clears me up to be able to enter into someone else's time of intensity. If I'm carrying those wounds so close to the surface, I will become so easily triggered by someone else's pain and suffering. So really to be an effective doula, We need to spend time on introspection before we're prepared to enter into those times with other people.
1: This is the When You Die podcast. If it has to do with death and dying, we're talking about it. I'm your host, Johanna Lund. Today, I'm talking with Francesca Arnoldy, the author of Cultivating the Doula Heart, Essentials of Compassionate Care. She is the course developer, facilitator, and program director of the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine End-of-Life Doula Professional Certificate Program. She works collaboratively with hospice and palliative care teams in the Burlington, Vermont area, as well as leads workshops wherever she's needed. Francesca encourages all of us to hold one another's hand as we travel through the difficulties of life. She can be found contemplating birth, death, and living life with a doula heart on her website, contemplative doula.com. Hello, Francesca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking to you about your book, Cultivating the Doula Heart. Uh, Thank you for having me. Well, maybe we could just start right off the top. Uh, What does it take to be a doula, and what does that
0: mean? Sure. I've been a birth worker for a decade now. So, working as a postpartum doula, a childbirth educator, and a birth doula. And I used to be more possessive of the term doula and what it entailed and what it meant to me. The role of a doula to someone who was unfamiliar, I would sometimes get the response and a person would say, you know what? I was that for my sister. I was that for my cousin. And I would smile, but sort of internally scoff and say like, you're not a real doula. You know, I trained for two years and I read all these books and had a big exam and had to have things recorded from providers that I worked alongside and clients and things. And I continue to educate myself and I have drastically opened my eyes and mind and heart to this idea of a doula becoming an emotional support person for those experiencing times of intensity, including birth and now end of life. And so what it takes to be a doula is someone who is kind and compassionate and who is able to put aside their own agenda, their own to-do list in order to be fully present with another person on that other person's journey. So it's much more inclusive now to me. And with the course at the University of Vermont in our training program, we have been really pleasantly surprised by the variety of learners that we're attracting. And we don't only get aspiring doulas coming through. We have physicians, we have nurses, we have mental health professionals, we have spiritual care providers, we have hospice volunteers. We have people who in their personal lives know of someone close to them who has received a terminal diagnosis, and they're looking for more ideas and approaches. So I truly believe that these doula essentials can be infused into many relationships and many types of work. That's an amazing uh, point. Why do you think that a a
1: physician or a nurse or, or other healthcare providers would want to do this kind of training? What is it that they're not getting in their own training?
0: I think it's for a variety of reasons that I've learned directly from these graduates. And what they've shared is sometimes it is that Maybe they're moving into a new specialty. Maybe they haven't worked in end of life yet, so they want to prepare themselves well. Or for some people, they've been in this field of providing end of life care, either through hospice, palliative care, even family medicine, for a number of years, decades sometimes even. And they've found themselves becoming more and more burnt out and more robotic in their work. And so they're coming through the course with the hope of self healing. And rekindling that initial spark and in their passion for this career.
1: Wow, that's really great. That really speaks to me, anyway, of, of people's dedication to, in many ways, change the tide around death care altogether, being protocol driven, trying to find cures, as opposed to supporting someone at end of life. So that seems like very encouraging that. Times are changing
0: around this whole subject of how we die. I couldn't agree more. And I think part of the reason that we're having the reach that we have is we're out of a medical school at a university. So people are acknowledging that we are featuring a large number of voices of subject matter experts in our course. So we're really covering hospice, palliative care, end of life in all its facets very comprehensively grief in a number of modules, and then also the the doula approaches and different tools that you can add to your tool bag. And when we talk about in the course, what hats do you see yourself wearing as we're moving through the content together? We're not only focusing on private practice doulas, we're saying, how are you integrating this into your life, into your work, into your volunteerism? What does this mean to you and for you? Well, I was going to ask too, you know, like
1: where would you find a doula? So that's kind of where you're going here.
0: Doulas, I mean, it's still an emerging career path. So if you are searching for a private practice doula that would be hired privately by a client, then a Google search is your best bet. There are some directories that will pop up and they will feature different states. We also have a really robust Facebook page, End of Life Doula Community, I believe it's called. Something close to that. And we welcome the public to join us if they want to be more involved in these conversations and they want to learn more. And so we often will have people who will post, you know, in search of doula for this certain area. And so we'll try to connect people. And also within our quarterly newsletter, sometimes we're able to put those announcements out to our grad pool for clients, but also for doulas who are hoping to network and work alongside other doula grads. So we're trying to encourage this sort of community uprising of doulas so that within your town, people will start to recognize, you know, you are the go-to person or collaborative or partnership that we can turn to during these times. So a doula could be
1: someone in a variety of settings as well, like hospice, palliative care. Is there any place that a doula wouldn't be found, so to speak, or, or, or be welcome?
0: I would say a doula will follow a client to wherever they are considering home at the moment, and we are working directly for that person. So I wouldn't foresee any sort of placement facility where a doula would not be welcome. I do think that a doula being an unfamiliar role still, largely would have to be able to present themselves well to the team and quickly explain what it is that the doula is offering, which can complement what everyone else is offering. And
1: can you say a little bit more about what a doula does offer?
0: Sure. There are different interpretations of this work and doulas will sometimes focus on specific offerings. What we cover and train people to be able to feel comfortable to offer are things like Developing rapport, sitting bedside, sitting in the midst of chaos, finding calm, remaining centered. And then after that relationship ha- is starting to gain traction and there's trust that's being built, then you can sort of get into more of, of the work, which includes life review. And that could be informal chit-chatting, talking, or more formal meaning following a series of prompts and perhaps even recording those answers. And so those recordings, which could be video, audio, or on paper, could be a scrapbook, could be with photographs or other mementos, that can become a legacy project, which is a beautiful gift for our client's loved ones to be able to receive. And then a doula will also assist with advanced care planning. We'll look at what do you have in place? Do you have your legal documentation completed? If not, is that something you're interested in completing? Do you know your options? And then the supplementary forms. So how do we help you envision a more personalized, a more meaningful journey for yourself? And how can your natural network and your care team be more aware of what you're hoping for, what your preferences are, and what any of your fears or anxieties might be? And then also vigil planning. So we can assist them with that time of active dying when a person is generally no longer communicative and can't verbally express their wishes, how can we help set things up ahead of time so that each person could feel most safe, comfortable, and respected?
1: Just to go back to what you said about a life review, I'm kind of curious about
0: that. Why would that be important? I was recently giving a workshop and remarking on how infrequently we give someone center stage and we shine the spotlight on that person and really open up time and space for that person to share without being interrupted, without it being cut short and in front of someone who's truly genuinely interested in hearing their story. And doulas, I feel like, are natural story catchers. We, we enjoy hearing what someone else would like to share with us. And for that person, given that time and space to process, they're going through stories, memories, sometimes hardships, sometimes their life goals that they either attained or didn't attain, which sort of twists, turns, led them in directions that were surprising or joyful or disappointing. So they're really sort of debriefing life in general or just more specific aspects of their life, which is beautiful work at end of life. And we see that it feels more pressing and there's often more urgency to sort of surface what has been underneath.
1: Have you ever had any experiences, particularly around the life review sort of stuff? I'm thinking of some people that I have known that when faced with their own death, They weren't sure that their life had much value. It seems like being able to do a life review might trigger memories that make them realize maybe they actually had a life they weren't remembering, you know, like that there was more to it, that there was value.
0: Mm, Definitely. We see that. And something that I've noticed with our older elders currently as a generational kind of trend is that a lot of people were raised to not talk about themselves and that it feels impolite to do so and that they would really rather not brag at all. Mm-hmm. So we have to find more creative angles and questions to engage the conversation because it's really not about bragging. It's it's about reviewing and reflecting. And once we can allow the person to understand that it's a wonderful gift that they're giving us, that we're able to see places through their eyes or times that we weren't even perhaps alive for it or to experience what a gift that is to be able to receive those stories that can sometimes help encourage someone to open up and start sharing more. And then you're right. They have these moments of gosh, as they're just sorting through their own stuff, you know, I really hadn't thought about it that way. Or, wow, this this is really a pattern for me or wow, this really reflects this value that I didn't realize I held so strongly to. And so a lot of insights come from these sessions.
1: That's amazing. I think about what you're saying and I think it's true that we don't in our day-to-day lives carve out much time to listen to other people's stories. So it seems at this point, especially what a gift to have someone who wants to hear you. Wholeheartedly. In your book, you have this wonderful quote from Pema Chodron. And I'm just going to to read it and then I'd like to talk about it a little bit. Compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded, it is a relationship between equals. Only when we know our darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity.
0: So many layers. I mean, it just in our course and in the book and in my own contemplative practice, I really do try to investigate th- that darkness, the pieces of me that I would rather remain hidden in the shadows sometimes. And when I'm able to, with self-compassion, look at them and attempt to heal then it clears me up to be able to enter into someone else's time of intensity. If I'm carrying those wounds so close to the surface, I will become so easily triggered by someone else's pain and suffering. So really to be an effective doula, we need to spend time on introspection before we're prepared to enter into those times with other people. And we're equal, we're humans. And as doulas, it's quite beautiful to me that it's this relationship of equality and of trust. And it's not about I'm coming in as an expert on your dying and your living, you having your best experience. And I am ready to learn from you as I am a student of my clients and a student of death. And I have ideas and information that could be of value to you that I can offer.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. It seems like you have to build a certain Compassionate capacity or heart capacity to do this kind of work?
0: I think so, especially for it to be sustainable. We hear about burnout and exhaustion so much. And in the book, I have our chief of palliative care, Dr. Bob Gramling, is the one who wrote the foreword, and we feature his expertise in the course. He has been wonderfully supportive of the program since its inception. And as part of what he offered, he allowed us to see some brain research was about suffering. And so they had one group of people who were trained in empathy and another group of people who were trained in compassion. And what they found was when it was time to go sit with someone who was in suffering, in deep suffering, the people trained in empathy, the parts of their brains that would be triggered were associated with dread. And the people who were trained in compassion, the parts that fired off were associated with joy. Hmm. And not because anyone would take pleasure in witnessing another suffering, but that there's this sense of what an honor and a privilege it is to be allowed into such a vulnerable time with somebody else and to not feel we are responsible for rescuing them or fixing them. That's Mm -hmm. not our job or role, which empathy does sort of ask us to look at, what would I do in this situation? What have I done in this situation? Can I put myself in this person's shoes? So we're expending a lot of energy in that direction versus cultivating trust in that person's inherent wisdom and strength to move themselves through this process and find their own way out that's really going to be best for them.
1: That is so amazing. I've never heard that before, but the comparison of being empathetic versus being compassionate seems so right on because you think of empathy as being able to feel the other. Mm -hmm. So it's really being kind of overwhelmed by that feeling of other, where compassion is an act of loving kindness towards other.
0: Right. And in the book, I talk about differentiating sympathy, empathy, and compassion. And so it's that pitying that i feel sad for you i feel bad for you or then i feel how this feels for you which as we know isn't actually possible but that's what you're striving for in empathy and then moving into compassion which is i i honor how this feels for you right as a witness as a companion it takes a lot of courage doesn't it oh it does and we have so many people who enter the course or who at workshops, we talk about this theme of not feeling like we are enough. And it's something that's on my mind a lot. And then the journals during Mod 1, we ask about the learner's fears. And this is a private communication between the learners and myself. And so often this fear of not being enough comes up. Mm. I'm I'm not strong enough. I'm not ready enough. I'm not prepared enough. I haven't healed myself enough. Mm. And so I think that these are they're actually good signs of reverence for this work and of reverence for for the intensity of this, for what you're entering into. And if we lose sight of that, and we all of a sudden feel like, oh, I got this, I know just what I'm gonna do. I'm I'm the expert on all things death and dying and going in a direction that is not going to serve our clients. So I try to help them understand it's a cue. We need to continually work on self-care and contemplating our own stuff. And it's also just this beautiful sign that we recognize how difficult and complex end of life truly is.
1: Excellent. Amazing. I definitely am going to have a, a doula when my end of life comes. Should I be so fortunate to know?
0: I hope I will too. And for my family, yeah. we're just not used to seeing our community members, our loved ones through these times of birthing and dying. So they end up feeling so incredibly mysterious. And then you're in the thick of it. You're in the throes of the emotions and you have to figure out all the pragmatic details, all the practicalities that go along with, you know, healthcare decisions, but then also making the planning decisions and then making the services decisions. And then you're entering into grief and we're, we're often feeling like we're lost and Isolated, mm-hmm. and so a doula can enter in and assess. You know, what do you have in place? What is your comfort level? What is your knowledge base? What do you know about what's available to you right now? Mm-hmm. And how can I help move in or move out in accordance with the other people who are caring for you?
1: Amazing. So, speaking of loss, you know, we're coming up on some holidays that are big ones that we're used to having all of our loved ones around with us, and If someone is passed, that's a big hole. But also if someone's dying, that's also another shift in the, the way that we relate to these holidays. Do you have any advice or help for people that might be going through that now? They've lost someone or they're in the process of it. And here's this big celebration, say Christmas, or where we're used to
0: having them be fully alive. It just adds on layers of loss and of sadness and of the realization that things are no longer the same, mm-hmm. nor will they ever be. And that uh, generally you'll see a disease process that is continuing to progress where you have these vivid memories of your traditions and your roles really brings us to mind. And people end up feeling very raw, very vulnerable, and often quite helpless in the face of this because they can't fix it. I mean, I'm not to say you can't do anything. You can work with it and you can look for the type of listener who wants to hear, you know, tell me about your family traditions. Tell me some of your best memories. So just today I was with my doula client and I asked him, I said, you know, Thanksgiving is coming and do you have any plans for Thanksgiving? And and so we talked about that. And then I asked what their favorite foods are that they usually prepare. And, you know, my client was able to share with me memories and through that sharing, you can often sort of get to the core values and the top priorities. And that's where you have some creativity. Can you continue to honor those priorities for this person, even though mobility has changed and even though eating habits may have changed and especially in the time of grief, If a person's physical presence is no longer there, how can we consider some some rituals during that time? And I think that some of us feel very pressured to remain stoic and to pretend that stuff away when really, even though it's difficult to allow tears and grief into the holiday, when it's a time of gathering... If you can do so in a way that's intentional, Mm -hmm. it can usually lead to a lot more healing and expressions with people who you gather who are your, your loved ones. It can be a wonderful time, but it also can be a time of, you know, for some people, if it's very fresh, they decide to sort of skip it for a year. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that there's no right or wrong way to grieve as long as you're really being true to where you're at. I know of her son that decided to just skip a holiday completely. Instead, next year, they'll start to think about, okay, how do we rework this holiday now with our current family unit, which is different? How do we want to reimagine this at this point moving forward?
1: Are there other sort of rituals that could be shared by a family who's had a loved one pass away?
0: Sure. I feel like there are so many ways that you can personalize it. I think, for example, we have Thanksgiving coming soon. If you could imagine if you wanted to set out a place for that person or set out a special altar for that person with some photos, a bowl, and it's a a beautiful family heirloom bowl, and you have a a notepad or paper, write down your favorite memory of Mm -hmm. Uncle Joe and you all put it in there. And then during a toast or a blessing or something before you eat, you could pass those around, sort of welcoming the memories of Uncle Joe to be with you and doing it in a way that feels like you're, you're gathered and you're with your people and there's love surrounding it and you're not ignoring what's truly there. And what we hear so often from grievers is that People don't want to ask them how they're doing or about the loss because they're afraid to remind the griever of the person that has died. Mourners will tell you time and time again, I have not forgotten. Believe me, I have not forgotten. And if you invite me to talk about that person, if I feel you know strong enough or compelled enough at that moment, that person existed. And this bond continues with me, even in this person's absence. So that's one example. You could also do something in honor. Maybe Uncle Joe loved cats. And so you gather up a bunch of cat toys and cat food and give it to your local shelter in remembrance of Uncle Joe.
1: That's wonderful. I love this idea of sharing memories of people at the table. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. I know that in some instances, it might not be exactly the right thing, but in others, it'll be spot on. And that's part of the diversity of humans and all the various ways in which we grieve.
0: Definitely. And maybe it's not read aloud. Maybe it could be sort of a little scrapbook or journal that you make for Aunt Sue, who was Uncle Joe's wife, and she gets to take it home and read it when she's having moments of feeling alone and lonely in her grief.
1: It's very hard in our society to know we're not really comfortable with death. So we do tend to avoid people who've had a great loss, and we don't know how to talk to them. So I love what you're saying about reminding people that for the person who's had a loss in their life, their mother, their best friend, their husband, their brother's sister, they haven't forgotten it. So being able to talk is a big gift.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. I worked with a place of worship last December leading up to the holidays. And we we gathered and we talked about our own losses and we read a book together about grief. And one of the women shared that after her mom had died and everything sort of calmed down, the dust had settled and people had mostly gone back to their lives. She was at the grocery store one day, just trying not to lose it, trying not to cry in the middle <laughs> Of the grocery store. And she looked around her for a minute and she said, how do they not know? How do people not know how much pain I'm in right now? Right. And if we could remember that more often, that people are carrying around pain and suffering and grief and loss, and we don't see it, we don't wear it generally anymore. There aren't these overt signs. But if we just know that there's the chance that person could be just barely holding it together to get her sandwich supplies have a little more patience understanding for humans in general. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh gosh, that's so true. That's so true. And it's it's certainly true about grief and loss. I had done a documentary on forgiveness and focusing on people who had lost a loved one to murder. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty heavy and shocking thing to not have the grace to be able to say goodbye. One of the the people whose stories I told was saying, you know, I'll be going along, keeping it together, feeling okay. And then all of a sudden I've fallen into the darkest pit of despair and I never know when I'm going to fall in there. Mm. I've learned to know that I will get out of it and I'll keep going forward, but that grief isn't a linear thing at all.
0: Right right crashes over you washes over you i can't see the light of the other side but it will come Mm -hmm. but that initial time especially when you haven't quite built up that sense of resilience is is very difficult
1: yeah resilience Well, Francesca, this has been an amazing conversation. And I love the work that you're doing, that you have put together a training program with the University of Vermont and creating a doula nation. We need a doula nation. (laughs) So thank you so much for that and your very beautiful book and the time you spent with me today.
0: Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, you're very welcome. And we will have your website available for people. Just a real rich assortment of, of good information. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This conversation is brought to you by the When You Die Project. From existential afterlife questions to palliative care and the nuts and bolts of green burial, if it has to do with death, we're talking about it. WhenYouDie.org